Hey guys, it's Briars. Just want to tell you what's going on down at uh, Meltdown Comics in Hollywood. We got Meltthology. Meltthology is a monthly comics jam at Meltdown every third Tuesday of the month. Here's how it works. Show up at the Melt at 7 p.m. and draw a page of whatever you want. At 9.30 p.m. we'll collect all of the art and $3 for printing costs. When you come to the next month's comics jam, you'll get a zine with everyone's contributions inside. There is no set theme, and all skill levels are welcome. Last but not least, Meltthology contributors get 10% off their Meltdown purchase on the night of the event. Go to at Meltthology on Twitter or Facebook if you have any specific questions. Ask for Chuck, and that is at Melt underscore Thology. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. We are recording at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles, and I'm very happy to have as my guest today one of my good friends, Frank Forte, who is the publisher at Asylum Press and has been a storyboarder on uh, Bob's Burgers and has worked in animation. And I thought it'd be great to have somebody on, um, especially in contrast to last week where we had Ave Rose, who's a, um, a been self-publishing for quite a long time, but someone who's more grounded in the kind of comic book fandom community and who has been publishing a lot of sequential work. And so uh, without further ado, uh, welcome to the show, Frank. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Absolutely. So how did you get involved in comic books? Um, It really started, I was still in college, early 90s. um, I met the guys that were doing uh, Cry for Dawn Mm -hmm. up at a Fanico convention in Albany. And uh, I had already been submitting my work to publishers, getting rejected. And I met those guys, and I'm like, what are you guys doing? And they're like, well, we're self-publishing. I'm like, well, how do you do that? And they basically explained to me uh, how they solicited through the distributors, gave a cover, maybe a um, half-completed book, and said, we're going to put this out in six months get us orders. I'm like, it was all new to me. I'm like, that's how it works. What and year was this? 91, wow. 90 or 91. Wow. And I go, that's all you have to do. They go, do you do that? You get orders. The books are pre-sold because that's how Diamond, the dis- direct distribution market works. It's not returnable. You're guaranteed the money. You print the book, you ship it, you get paid. I'm like, that's how it works, huh? <laughs> They said, yep, and after getting rejected a few times, I'm like, I don't need these publishers. I could just do it myself with a little cash. And we proceeded to do four issues of From Beyond right after that in 91 and 92, wow. I think it was. So that was my start. And so were you illustrating and writing at that time? I was. So the all-in, because we, we, we discuss things that no other program discusses. We get into... You know, kind of the brass tacks of things, the 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 money, what what you were getting paid. You know, I talked, I had Steve Bissett on, um, on the I think the second show that we did, and I've known Steve since I was a teenager, and he was talking about page rates and things like that. Now, those aren't in the model for self publishing. No, they're really not. You're really just kind of working on spec until you sell the books, and then you kind of make a bulk rate. And if you're creators, yeah, you split it up. So it's always different. Depends on what you make. Mm-hmm. How so, much did um did it require to get that first issue out? You know, I don't, I think it was only about a couple thousand for mm-hmm. printing. And we we were unknowns. Nobody knew who we were. 
It was me, Mike Bliss, Scott DeAngelis, and Al Columbia at the time. Mm-hmm. And we, we were all unknowns. And I think we got orders for like five or 6,000. Wow, 1991 numbers. Yep. And then, and we were like, oh my God, that's so low. Because we were expecting 20, 30. Cry for Dawn was doing 30 or 40,000. Faust was doing like 50 or 60,000. These are black and white adult books, mature readers. Mm-hmm. So we were like 6,000 for a black and white book. We're like, ah, oh, this is so lame. But in retrospect, now those are great numbers. Those are gold. Um, so we did it. And, you know, I think we made six grand or something like that but you, you it was easier to make money and then yeah. we just split it and you know it wasn't like we were getting rich or anything but it was just the thrill of doing it really yeah well obviously that sustained because you're still publishing i am and how yeah. many titles have you put out at this point i think probably over 40 or 50 over the years mm-hmm. um fearless dawn is probably the the biggest one under asylum press which i started in 1999 mm-hmm. uh, vampire versus was really popular in the 90s cry for dawn did that one mm-hmm. um we did black powder zombie terrors eek a bunch of trades a bunch of one shots billy boy and um you know I, I wouldn't say i've been the biggest or most successful publisher financially but i do get my books out and, you know, they make a little money. Some break even, some don't. It definitely is harder now to do it than it was in the 90s. But um, you can you can definitely keep putting, putting the books out. Now, do you think that the most important thing, and you mentioned something which is actually really important, it's the fact that the business model of the 90s has changed substantially, that it was possible to get distribution on books. If you, Would you say that by having four completed issues ready to roll, that made it a lot easier to get product out there and to get the interest up? Or do you think that um, if you had to analyze the market now and with a lot of the types of avenues available to independent publishers, be it Kickstart or any kind of um, crowdfunding platform, do you think that it necessitates having as much completed work up front or has that in any way changed? Is that still important? Well, I think... Diamond definitely wants at least one full issue done. If you have four completed, you're you're definitely better off. I mean, mm-hmm. back in the 90s, they didn't even require um, a, fu- a full completed issue. All they wanted was a cover. Right. And your word that you'd get it done in the, in the four to six months or whatever the time lapse was between solicitation and publication, that you'd get it done, just a promise. And there were so many publishers and there were so many distributors. There were like six or seven. There was... Diamond Capital City, FM, Friendly Franks, Heroes World, Comics Hawaii, Sticks, and there was a bunch of others that you just didn't even deal with because you were like, I don't even want to deal with them. I mean, now you would kill for having another choice besides Diamond just for reorders or whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. Diamond's a great company. They get the stuff out there, but it was nice to have choices. Right. Um, but now, yeah, Diamond requires at least one issue. Uh, complete just so they know you're not going to cancel because they, they they lose money when you cancel a book. Um, but back then there was just it just seemed like there were so many titles and so much money being made with millions of print runs that they didn't care if you canceled. Um, I would say yeah now with Kickstarter I mean I've seen Kickstarter books, art books and comic books raise over a hundred thousand dollars which is amazing because you could go to Kickstarter, you could pre-fund the printing of the book, then solicit it through Diamond and book distributors, 
and you've made your money before and you can still make more money on solicitation, get your fans to buy it. I mean, it's an unbelievable time. And then you have digital comiXology. You could solicit through comiXology and you could just, it's, it's the, the, the newsstand, which was obviously very prevalent in the 80s mm-hmm. into the 90s, went away. And now it's back in digital form. I mean, you can literally, it's the, the comiXology and Comics Plus. They're like the worldwide newsstand is back. Yeah. I, I noticed, um, and Los Angeles is kind of a special place um, in that because we're so connected between multiple media conglomerates that have different divisions. And certainly, you know, you've got DC Comics are now out here, Marvel's out here. Um, and then the entertainment arms of those mega studios are out here as well, that we seem to maybe have a a skewed view of, of how it may work in, in the rest of America and definitely the, the rest of the world. But I can't remember the last time I saw a new comic book on a newsstand. Like it's that's really kind of gone away unless it's already polybagged and has a hefty price on it. Yeah, I think Marvel and DC may still sell on newsstands. Mm-hmm. I think the hard thing is finding the newsstand. They used to be everywhere, 7-Elevens, drugstores, you'd have the spinner racks. Mm-hmm. I think the only places that they're trying to bring back the newsstand is you see them in Barnes & Noble, which are already there for books. Mm-hmm. L.A., New York, Chicago probably have still have the, the newsstands, which you can buy magazines, and they also have smaller comics. Mm-hmm. But yeah, where else do you see newsstands? I think it's going by the wayside yeah kind of a sad a piece of the past that yeah. uh well we'll see what happens maybe it starts out again in barbershops the way that it yeah, did right. back in the day the five and dime as, yeah, my, exactly. as my parents would call it well um obviously when you started doing your own comics um and you've you've continued to to push from being just a self-publisher and publishing other people's work and you mentioned working with al columbia who's kind of a a, a pretty important name in um, in pop art circles these days, uh, someone who's recognized as a fine artist um, in that area of the art world that kind of transcends not just the lowbrow or pop surrealist gallery, but he's appreciated by the same types of institutions that get funding, like the Guggenheim. Um, not that he's been shown in the Guggenheim, but right. um, but the, the same people know his name. Yeah, yeah, he's great. I mean, he he always really wanted to just do his own thing his way, you know. And when you see Al Columbia comics, they are very rare. He doesn't put them out that often. But when you see him, I mean, people go nuts. They go crazy. They want to see what he's doing and what he's working on. But I think everybody only wishes he would put out more stuff. But, Mm -hmm. you know, he's one of those guys that he'll only put it out when it's ready and uh, and not very often. When did you transition into um, more of the traditional entertainment illustration type work like Bob's Burgers for instance right so I think I always did have a like a difficult time making money as a comic book artist I love the medium I'll always do it I'll always self-publish I I love digital as much as it people say it's not print it's still a great way to get your books out there Mm -hmm. Um, but I never really was able to break into like working for Marvel or DC where I was making you know, a page rate or a living. I always struggled. I dabbled in graphic design. I did tattoos for a while. And finally I had people that were working either in comics or dabbling in animation. 
and they were like, we've got to go out to L.A. because there's a lot of studios, there's a lot of work, and if you can draw, you can make money as a storyboard artist, a character designer. And I was just getting kind of tired of living in, in poverty. Like, I just, mm-hmm. it was it was really difficult to, to make it um, in Connecticut as an artist. Um, and I could never, my style was never really that where I could break into working for Marvel or DC. Mm-hmm. So a bunch of us packed up. We moved out to LA and we got jobs working for the studios. That was 2003, 2002, 2003. And, um, you know, it's a good, you, I could still be a storyteller. I could still draw for a living. You're making cartoons, which is great. But, you know, I've still always done comics on the side. And it's just because I love the medium. But for me, it was always difficult to make a living that way. Mm-hmm. And now you also exhibit in galleries, you do paintings. You've been featured in, in shows at, at the gallery. I run the Luz de Jesus Gallery and other galleries. And the people who are buying your work are the same type of people that are buying, you know, the more highbrow accepted pop surrealist work. And I've, I've noticed that certain, I'm not going to name collectors by name. I'm not sure how, how cool they'd be with being <laughs> right. called out. But um, that because your your painting style is so sort of grounded in a classic animation look um whether it's um i've always seen it as kind of like a max fleischer type of thing sure sure but that your understanding of that and it's i didn't realize as long as i've known you that you'd actually worked without columbia and there is a similar idea sure in your work but it's different work sure well i think al al's one of those guys that always it would inspire you to uh do something or go in a certain direction and I would be like trying to get work for Marvel or, or DC and drawing these superheroes and he's like you know what are you drawing that stuff for mm-hmm. you know go to the cartoony stuff and I was doing something called Billy Boy at the time which is very cartoony and he would always push you in that direction like you know be true to what you're really into and forget about working for hire it's just he, he just felt it was just a waste you know mm-hmm. So, sure, being around him, you're inspired by um, what he does and what he's looking at. And we were always looking at Fleischer stuff and old Warner Brothers. And I was into Spumco and old cartoons. And we'd go to animation festivals and we'd look at old newspaper comics. And I was looking at the pop surrealists of that time, like, you know, Robert Williams. This is like mid-90s, late-90s underground comics. And I think all those influences of animation classic cartoons classic comics just the layout and especially like the 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 cartoon model sheets that you see from animation i look at that stuff and i try to bring those raw drawings into my into my paintings but i think with yeah with trying to do more fine art i just sometimes you just get fed up with your day job yeah it's good to make money but you just kind of want to have something out there that's uniquely yours that you did without anyone coming over your shoulder and giving you notes telling you what to do try this try that change this color you just at some point as an artist you want to have something that's yours that you did and i think that's what i get from doing the fine art paintings it's just a way of saying i just want to be passionate about bringing something to the canvas and i'm using you know basically all the influences that things that i've liked and been inspired by over you know two and a half decades or whatever when I started looking at cartoons or longer. So, yeah, it's just a way, it's an outlet, I mm-hmm. feel. It's funny that a lot of people I know who do work in entertainment 
won't do commissions when it comes to their fine art because of the exact thing that you explained that yeah. you feel like when you're collecting that paycheck and I think that there's this grand romantic belief by a lot of people that you go to art school, you get your degree and then, you know, if you don't even think about the fact that you have to pay back <laughs> the phenomenal uh, astronomical price tag that comes with most college educations these days. If you don't even have to think about that, let's say that you had uh, a rich uncle who funded your college, right. that you're going to magically have your own studio and just start painting and someone's going to show these paintings and they're going to sell and in 25 to 30 years you'll be the next Van Gogh and, um, and your life is made. But of course, a, a life selecting the arts as a, a life choice is a very brave, daunting, and frequently unrewarding uh, professional choice. And so not wanting to once again kind of dip your toe back into letting people tell you what to do um, has become a very common um, way of doing business, I guess, that it could be easy money to do commissions. And I always tell my artists that if you're going to do commission work to charge more than you would charge for gallery work. Sure. So that, because uh, otherwise, why would anybody buy your gallery work if they know that they can just pay you the same amount of money and get exactly yeah, what exactly. they want? That, um, you know, make them pay, you know, the, um, we used to call it the, the you know, the AH tax. Yeah, right. <laughs> we, we won't invoke the word on our, our family-friendly podcast. But that, um, that it's, it's a difficult choice. And what's a great thing and what I try and, and explore in, in, in this podcast particular podcast especially is getting down to those brass tacks the um the the things that really make it rewarding for you and you've explained that you um that you love publishing and i also agree that you know that that being involved in animation as a way of continuing um your artistic merit is i I think it's fantastic i think number one that that brings better people into animation and that makes the animation better but that two it allows a second life for people who are artistically minded, who have and want to present their own ideas, it funnels to them the opportunity to be able to do that because their bills are being taken care of. Sure, absolutely. And it's not for everybody. Not everybody can do that. And there's there's certainly a lot of artists who are completely incapable of working in those types of environments. And that's not to um, to say that it's, it's a skill that you have to have. Some people have it and some people don't. So what do you think were the biggest influences upon you and at what age did you feel like you know I think this is something I really want to do I mean you know when we're kids maybe we you know we're five or six years old and you might want to you might say something ridiculous like I'm going to be a cowboy and I'm not talking about the people who work on ranches I'm talking about the Clint Eastwood type of cowboy Um, but that at a certain point as you feel an affinity for a maybe a particular gift that you have or um, you you meet the right mentor who who gives you direction um you have the right math teacher um whatever the case may be what do you think it was what was the defining moment in frank forte's life where you said you know i i think um i think i'm gonna do this yeah i think i think from an early age you know five six seven i was inspired by i was it was a steady diet of comic books Mm -hmm. cartoons and horror and I think those three things and the horror I couldn't get 
that much because my parents wouldn't let me watch it, but my grandmother had HBO. Uh, so I'd go over grandma's. 1979. At, at night, the, you know, she'd go to bed, and you know, no one locked anything back then. Yeah. And I was able to watch, you know, R-rated horror movies. I remember when Preview which was an early uh, cable delivery service that used the regular broadcast signals, and you'd have to have a, 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 a set-top box that would decode it. I remember right. waking up in the middle of the night and sneaking into the living room <laughs> and turning it to channel 27, then 26, then 27, then 26, to catch that little moment before the signal scrambled again because right. you'd always get some like bizarre, strange erotica. Yeah, it'd yeah. be a little flesh. I'm, I'm sure that the first time I saw Laura Gemser was probably on preview. Um, it was probably one of the Black Emmanuel movies, and I'm, I'm sure that that is somewhere in my head and has helped make yeah, me who right. I am today. Exactly. But I remember... I had not too that had HBO, and I remember yeah. like expecting like, oh, yeah, HBO. It was, it's like the you know the booby channels. It was great, it was but great you get then. the great horror, and you'd get you know all the, all the off the wall stuff. But I also remember that that first day, that the movies that we saw were not what I wanted to see, and it was and they're all good films, but it was like Coal Miner's Daughter. Yeah, you know, it was um, Brew Baker. I think yeah. some were really bad, like the kind of benign the seduction with. Uh, forget who was in that but you, you you saw some some brief nudie moments or yeah. some violence that was uh you'd see some gore some you'd hear the f word and you're just like so thrilled yeah yeah so it's obviously this is and i think a lot of people that are in our age group and that have kind of filtered towards doing what we do i as a gallerist you as a, as a, a painter an illustrator a publisher that there is this kind of holy or unholy trifecta of Horror, comic books, and um, and and fine painting, animation, and, and painting animation, too. Yeah. You could, there's probably F four, but yeah, you're right. There is. I think everybody's kind of takes influences from different areas, you know, and and kind of puts it all together. And I think people that are either comic book artists or painting in the pop surrealist or new figurative style, they're uh, they are influenced by all those things. Mm -hmm. And we're both from New England. Sure. You know, I'm I'm from Massachusetts, and you're from Connecticut. Sure. And of course, between us, you know, in in Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Massachusetts, is the birth of the the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, right? Which became such a big deal, right? Um, right about the time I was turning thirteen. Yeah. And those guys have become somewhat important in your life as well. Sure. So Kevin Eastman and I was I would go up. After Kevin Eastman made it with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, most people know he founded Tundra, which mm -hmm. was an independent publishing company that was in Northampton, Mass. It survived three or four years before it finally shut down. Mm -hmm. But it was a really great place to be at the time because I think Kevin bought or rented this factory. And in, the, in this factory were all these artist studios, and everybody just went up there and hung out. People had their own rooms. And it was really like this thriving artist community. It was really great to be a part of it. And when it ultimately shut down, it was like, it was just really depressing for a lot of people around there. And then plus, he opened up the Words and Pictures Museum. So mm -hmm. you'd go to Northampton, you had Tundra. Northampton's this great, young, thriving college town in the hills of Massachusetts. Almost near New York, really. Um... Buffalo, New York, not oh, New York uh, City. Yeah, it's, it's right. It's western, to, northwestern Mass. Right, close to western, uh, uh, upstate New York, the right. Further past Springfield even, I believe. And, um, you know, they'd have these great exhibits at Words and Pictures, and you'd see all this old Kirby stuff that Kevin Eastman had in his collection, and it was great. Um, 
and then right so the connection being kevin eastman buys heavy metal when it was ultimately going to go out of production national lampoon didn't want it they were going to have it die kevin buys it and saves it and over the years i've had a couple stories here and there and a few years ago he asked me at comic-con if i would like to guest edit an issue Mm mm-hmm I mean, I was thrilled. I'm like, you really guest edit an issue of heavy metal? I, especially, you know, when you go back and look at the classic era, you know, from 1979 or 78, I guess, right? When Something it, like that, 78. And you're talking about the magazine that exposed H.R. Giger to most sure. of America that definitely introduced Mobius, that definitely sure. introduced Mila Manara. Libertor. Libertore, yeah. Pepe Moreno, I mean. Did I tell you Pepe Moreno came to the Coaster Show last year? Oh, he did? And he introduced himself, and I'm like, Rebel. You know, like, <laughs> I, I, I bought the issue of Heavy yeah, Metal right. on the newsstand that had the very, the, the first Rebel. And, of course, he's gone off into entertainment, too. He has, yeah, right. He's done, like, video games. and Yep. Uh, but I talked to him recently. We're trying to get him to put some of his uh, unpublished work into heavy metal. <sighs> so great. And um, he wants to get back into comics. Like, he really loves the medium. Yeah. And he also had, had expressed interest in doing some, some more, like, actual exhibition work, too. And I thought it's... Fine art stuff. Yeah, that it, it that makes awesome. sense. You know, that that first wave, what became lowbrow, what became ultimately pop surrealism... And you can argue now that um, that the state of illustrative arts has been most impacted by the success of people who have worked in a sort of pop surrealism, whether it's Mark Ryden or uh, John Curran, uh, Odd Nerdrum in the fine art market. Sure. That it comes directly out of that Zap Comics generation of Robert Williams and S. Clay Wilson um, Stanley Mouse, um, you know, Crum, and all these guys, Gilbert Shelton. I mean, we could go on. Everybody that worked sure. at, um, you know, Spain Rodriguez. Sure. That it would make sense to me that since the natural hereditary successor to Zap Comics was really the Metal Hurlant, you know, the French original version of of heavy metal, and sure. that it took these really far out guys that had been doing very similar work, you know, Guido Krapax had been doing such groundbreaking yeah. S&M centric illustration going back to the early 60s. Um, his Baba Yaga story was turned into um, a feature film. And, you know, that impact in Europe was similar to the impact that, you know, via Fumetti in Italy and via Bande dessinée in France, that the underground comics had to, you know, the, the kind of hippie generation that that then kind of turned over into the 70s and you had these kids that were maybe you know definitely influenced by the uh the pot generation but a a lot of these guys weren't weren't smoking pot in their day i mean certainly robert crumb wasn't sitting in a bedroom in cleveland ohio or whatever um smoking a lot of grass to produce his drawings um i don't know that i can say the same for us clay wilson yeah right uh but that that it makes sense that that would be really ripe for rediscovery in a a fine art environment. That those guys, I mean, already Mobius is a museum exhibiting artist in in France was was hugely successful before he passed away. Um, his illustrations were going for what uh, I think American comic art fans would think were inordinately high prices. But there was always the respect for 
sequential art in Europe that did not exist in the United States until, I mean, quite honestly, the rediscovery of the independent comic, you know, the, the type of stuff that Al Columbia was doing, the type of stuff that um, was being done by Raw, um, the stuff that was being really championed in the pages of the Comics Journal. And I, I, I'm kind of, I have sort of a, a split opinion on this. That in the one hand, I'm really happy that the Comics Journal became such a central focus for independent creators telling independent stories. But I also really felt like they've always been very dismissive of superhero comics. And I think that... They have. They absolutely have. You know, if, if you're not Grant Morrison, you don't get covered for writing superhero comics in the Comics Journal at all. Right. It's, it's like they pretend that 85% of the comic industry doesn't exist. And... Um, and I mean, there's there's reasons to get upset about that now, but certainly I think when Gary Groth was running the Comics Journal, and he embraced, you know, having Gil Kane interview Robert Crumb, you know, like really crossing these these two worlds, that um, it opened up a perception and a respect for the older generation of of superhero art illustrators. But it was very dismissive of the second and third wave. Like there wasn't a whole lot of love for Neil Adams for John Buscema, for um, Marshall Rogers even, really, in the Comics Journal, even though I think anybody who was a, a legitimate comics historian who had a love for the game, shall we say, would have to think of these guys in terms above even people like George Perez and John Byrne, who I think are amazing and were probably the two core artists of the majority of my childhood, um, that if you weren't Jack Kirby and you weren't Steve Ditko and you weren't with EC Comics, it just would... they were very dismissive of the later generations. Yeah, it's weird. I think Gary Groth always just wanted to present people with different creators that normally did not get any kind of mainstream press. Mainstream, I guess, being Wizard or... Um, I don't even know... Pre-Wizard, but like, like um, Comic Buyer's Guide. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, he just wanted Amazing to, Heroes, I guess, would have been one of the yeah, bigger yeah. publications Comic then. Scene was before that. Yeah. Um, Comic Scene was great. That was Steranko's publication. Oh, was it? The great thing about that is every other page of that was an advertisement for some for David Hamilton or right. like erotic photo book. And sometimes the woman at the grocery store would sell it to me, and sometimes she wouldn't. It depended right. on who was on the cover. Right. If there was, uh, you know, if it was Michael Keaton in a Batman costume, I could buy it. If it was Sybil Danning, there's no way that that magazine was leaving in my in my brown paper bag. Yeah, right. But um, that really, I think, was maybe the first publication to side by side feature what was commonly considered fine art by way of the art photography with comic book stuff like right there in the same magazine yeah back to the fine art thing i think that it is strange that only till recently did silver age mm -hmm. covers silver age interior pages start fetching prices like 10 15 20 dollars yeah. i mean in the 80s they they you could buy those pages for like 20 30 bucks i mean yeah. frank miller pages were 20 bucks i mean it's a friend of mine said he bought a Fantastic Four page. No, no, it was an X-Men page from X-Men number 102 for 25 bucks. I think it's worth about 16000 now. Dave Cochran page. It's a Dave Cochran page. Yeah. And um, I don't know, did was there something funky going on with art dealers buying and then selling and then upping the prices? It's great that that stuff hangs in galleries, but the prices are crazy. I think, I mean... Robert Crumb, he always fetched more than 
the normal person for and more than years. Jack Kirby by yeah. leaps and bounds so, the whole way down the line. Like, so he was he was always considered his pages were always considered fine art, but that all those other pages that were just considered trash by art dealers. Yeah, but it's good that it gets respect. I mean, comic books definitely have gotten more respect than they ever have. I mean, in the 80s, you you read comic books, like girls wouldn't talk to you. It was like ridiculous. Yeah. You had to hide it. And now it's like everybody reads comics. Yeah. A couple weeks ago, we had on, on the show uh, Satine Phoenix, who's um, a female comic artist and um, has dabbled in fine art as well. And she, she's also been um, kickstarting uh, her own her own projects. And she talked about the fact, because I asked her, I was like, well... You know, what's it like being a woman in this kind of man's world? You know, and especially because she was a game master. She was playing Dungeons and Dragons. And I can tell you right. when I was 12 years old that there weren't a lot of girls playing Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, right. But she corrected me. She was like, well, no, they did. But their older brothers, boyfriends, and classmates were such jerks to them that it killed their interest in, right. in wanting to pursue it. And I think what has happened is that I think our society has grown a little bit more tolerant of you know, different cultures and definitely, you know, respecting, you know, the power that women have as creators and not just as maybe sexual objects that, that, that over time has changed. And now when you walk into a comic shop, there's a good chance a girl works there. There's a good chance that she's not, you know, that, that she's average or above average, um, with respect to both intelligence, you know, to physical appearance. And I don't want to belabor that point, but I think that it was a very different world 15 years ago. Sure. And you many, know, 20 many, years ago, absolutely. 30 years ago, definitely. Many more female creators in comics, writers, artists, anchors, colorists. I mean, mm-hmm. they're just what female comic book creators in the 80s, they'd be limited to like coloring i mean michelle wrightson uh louise um simonson you know that um yeah it was inkers and colorists there was of course uh, marie the great marie severin Severin, right everybody points to her wendy fior was at charlton i mean Mm -hmm. there there were a few but i mean wendy peenies were very rare oh right yeah exactly writing illustrating her own comics but now there's i mean with the web web comics and I mean, Kickstarter, if you want to touch on that point, I think for any independent publisher or comics creator, Kickstarter is a great way to get your stuff out there, raise some money and do a printing before we just have to save up the money. There's yeah. no, you couldn't, i sure you could go to independent people that had money or family, but Kickstarter, I mean, if you can raise one or $2,000, that's great. Five grand, great. But I mean, you just look at the comic books. There's people raising over $100,000 for mm-hmm. graphic novels. And some of these people, they're not major creators. They're not like people that work for Marvel and DC. They're indie people that have made a name for themselves on the web, on their own, with the web comic, with social media. And their fans are coming together and helping fund a comic. That just was not possible 20 years ago. Yeah. It's great. 20 years ago it wasn't possible five Five years years, ago but the you know our guest next week is going to be christopher ulrich um fine artist um amazing guy and he was one of the first people to actually kickstart an exhibition and he was you know kind of demonized for it yeah um, like people are like how dare you ask me for money to do this show and now now studios are doing it 
And studio, and I remember in the Hollywood thing, studios when when you Kickstarter came out, the agents would say, "Oh no, no, don't kickstart, don't kickstart." Of course, because the studios didn't want you to have that power. Yeah, they want to be in control. And now, at once, celebrities started doing it. Everyone started doing it. You can't stop it, really. You know. But um, and back to Chris Ulrich real quick. I'm also heavy metal. I'm guest editing issue 277, which hits the stands in October. And we have a feature article on Christopher Ulrich. He's one of the artists in featured in the artist gallery. He's the artist studio. Skinner is the artist gallery. So I think heavy metal, of course, as you know, changed hands recently. Kevin's still involved. Uh, Jeff Krellitz is one of the new co-owners of it. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to bring different types of artists, different types of creators. They want to bring more fine art, pop surrealist type people in there, concept artists. Grant Morrison's going to be the new editor-in-chief. Yeah, I spoke mean, with Grant at, at Comic-Con this year, right right next to your table. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be, I think it's going to be another amazing time for heavy metal, like a rebirth. and a Golden age. Could be. Yeah. Could be. So It's great to have, um, always to have a sort of hybrid that connects the things that we would be interested in anyways. Certainly, you know, in the 70s, it was, if you were into a certain type of comic book, you might be into a certain type of music. I mean, for the generation of guys that were before me, it was like Hawkwind and Michael Moore's connection. And then it was, you know, the Frank Frazetta covers sure. to, um, you know, Molly Hatchet albums. Yeah, I right. always wish Molly Hatchet were a better band. Yeah, right. <laughs> You'd look at those amazing Frank Frazetta covers and be like, oh, I really wish this was heavier. They had some good tunes. They did have some they good tunes, some good absolutely. Tunes. I'm not going to hate Southern on Molly Hatchet. Heavy Southern, you know? Yeah. But the... Um, and certainly the Michael Whalen Elric covers yeah, that were on uh, Sirith Ungall's albums. And he did those Lovecraft covers back then. Yeah, yeah, which were being republished by Bantam and um, I think Del Rey. And yeah, those great wraparound covers that were all kind of similar. The, the, these things connect. Like the, the, the likelihood that you would be into uh, you know, a painter like Ulrich and you know, the comic work of someone like Grant Morrison um, and, you know, even the the illustration chops of some of the people that are, are kind of bringing towards, bringing back that kind of Dave Stevens look. And I know you work with a, a pretty phenomenal artist who I've always looked at as kind of like, wow, you know, they should get this guy in Rocketeer. Like, he's, he's yeah, really right. got that Dave Stevens touch. and um, But it's still his own thing. Steve Mannion. Steve Mannion. Yeah, he's ah, great. Love he's that great. guy's stuff. Yeah, he's and he's going back to the whole um, commission thing versus fine art. Steve Manning is one of those guys that makes a pretty good living doing commissions. Mm -hmm. He loves doing it, and he likes the challenge, and people pay him, you know, good money, and you know he does great work. So some people actually look at the commission, and they love it. They love the challenge. Other people don't. I guess it's all pretty much like what you're into. I mean, I'll do them. Uh, myself here and there um, but sure I'd much rather in my spare time when it's just me I work all day getting told do this do that try this in my fine art life yeah I just want to do my own thing well talk to me a little bit more now about conventions because I think this is something that and I, I imagine you know in my head <laughs> that when when people see the guests that I bring on and that I do seem to have a focus on getting a little bit behind the scenes 
Where do you think the importance is to conventions? I mean, obviously, it's it's integral to an independent publisher, but how do you select? Like, which conventions do you think are the conventions that you have to do? Which are the conventions that, you know, you feel like, oh, I'm really taking a chance if I if I travel out here and I, I haul all my goods and if I don't sell anything? You know, for a while, there were people that would be only doing a couple shows a year, like maybe they'll do San Diego Comic-Con and then they'll do Ape, you know. Um, but now it seems like there's certainly a lot more shows than ever there were before, but now the costs of tables at these shows is yeah it does make it, or break it does get expensive i think um you have to be choosy like if you're traveling to denver i would say do the big denver show or phoenix do the big phoenix show seattle do um the emerald city con but if you're going to do smaller cons and you're traveling across the country or taking a chance do the smaller cons that are local near you that you could drive to mm-hmm. but i think if you're an indie creator starting out you really need to do as many of those conventions as you can i mean Cry for Dawn, those guys did every convention they could. New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Rhode Island. BossCon, I remember that. Everywhere. Boss yep. They just didn't care. They just did everything. They built a huge fan base because of it. And if you have good work and you're there and you're persistent and you go to the town, you talk to the comic store, a lot of comic stores are very open to taking books on consignment. Get your books in there. You know, some some comic stores, it's Marvel and DC and Image. They don't even want to talk to you. Well, forget those places. Go to the places that support indie comics, uh, indie comic creators. Mm-hmm. Do the convention, do a signing at the store, and move on. Think of it like a, like you're a rock star. You're on tour. You're doing a convention circuit. You're doing a store signing. You're meeting with some creators. You're having a powwow in a city to talk about you know, how to get the books out, how to run a Kickstarter. And then you go home, then you work on your books, then you go on another little tour. I mean, the conventions, it's a great way to network because you're a comic creator. You're in your cave. You don't talk to people. It's not a studio setting. It's it's reclusive. You got to get out there and meet other creators. They could say, oh, I'm having this trouble. How do you do this? Or what publisher works? What's the best printer? How are you guys shipping? What about bookstore distribution? When you're starting out, you don't know all this stuff. There's really not one place, and then it's constantly changing. You just have to kind of get out there. That's kind of an interesting point and in why maybe some of the smaller shows are such a good uh, business strategy for emerging companies that when you do the big shows, the bump into factor is great if you can get away from your table. And yeah, if you can't get away true. from your table, then it's really just that punishing work day of having to put that smile on and having to, to do the little song and dance to get people over to the table and hope they buy stuff. And a slow day can be just defeating. It could be tough. I've had many of those where you just leave depressed. You're like, why am I doing this? But I guess, you know, bring a black tarp, a black fabric, cover your table, just get up, walk around and talk to people. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, you could get stuck there. And I've had many of those where you do this convention nobody shows up you sell one book and you're like i just wasted this whole day i mean it's a good way to get some sketching done mm-hmm. talk to the guy next to you do something but there there can be a lot of those especially when you're starting out the good thing about a bad show where everybody's doing poorly is that you all get together and talk during the loadout you all get to kind of True. sit there and kvetch about it a little bit and be True. like oh my god this this was the worst show yeah, since this is terrible and then you'll name the Sucks. last bad show and then everybody's like oh but you know i'm really looking forward to this other thing and it could be a show that you're unaware of yeah, like well right. how'd you do last year oh you know we did pretty well you'd probably do really well True. hey you know what we might have some table space True. you guys want to buy a bigger booth and then you you start like 
these great kind of business friendships with people who are just like you that, I mean, you can start sharing costs. I mean, you talk about going on tour. I remember back in the, um, in the late 90s, you know, seeing the guys that would split from image like, you know, the uh, Top Cow guys before they were kind of Top Cow, right. like kind of pooling resources and getting together under under one banner to to really kind of make a bigger impact. And they realized that having a bigger presence was better for everybody, you know, under that umbrella. Sure, absolutely. And it's especially true of independent guys. Although I've heard some stories, I won't name names, about um, certain comic book professionals who, if left unchecked, will completely banner off the next three tables next to them until oh, somebody says something about it. That is true. That does happen. Yeah, and as an indie guy, sure, you have to be. You can't be afraid to step up and talk to the con- the promoter and be like, "Hey, these guys ripped off our tables." But yeah, that does happen. Mm-hmm. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, about and then and then the whole self-publishing thing too. You know, and it isn't for everyone. Someone could get into it. They do it for a while, and they're like, "I'm printing, I'm 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 shipping books, I'm I'm storing books. I don't want to do this. Yeah, I just want to draw comics. Well, if it's good enough, you, you may get picked up by an indie publisher. There's indie publishers smaller than Fantagraphics that will take you on. You could just go digital. You could do it yourself through Comicsology. Um, you know, if you're good and you have a fan base, chances are somebody will be like, "Hey, you know what? Come with us. We'll take care of the publishing." But you kind of have to get there. It's almost like, you know, Dave Matthews would sell his CDs out of the back of his truck for years, mm-hmm. and then he got picked up by a label. But I've heard because he, he built that fan base, mm-hmm. he was able to do that. If you don't have that fan base, it could be a little bit harder. You remember the first issue of Bone was independently produced. It was, was it? And the um, when it got picked up by, was it Image that published Bone? Some some other Maybe. bigger publisher right. ran with it, and so he still had boxes and boxes of Bone Number One that had not sold. He did, and he made a fortune selling them at retail price when it was going for like fifty or sixty dollars wow. an issue, or so I've I've wow. been told. It's like them. printing your own money. Yeah. So I mean, even if you don't hit it first, like I I can tell you. Everybody who has ever self-published has boxes and boxes of at least one title that right. they either got bad numbers from the from distribution and so they overpublished, or um, you know one store had ordered a lot and that store went under four months before the um, you know after the issue preview came out and before the the money started rolling in. Yeah, but that everybody's got boxes and boxes of these things in their closets. It's not worthless. If you persevere, the value will come back. Yeah, that that is true. I still have some books from the early From Beyonds, like at my mom's house in Connecticut, that there's some value. It didn't go up as much as I would thought it would being published in 91. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, maybe 10 more years. Who knows? But yeah, they, they could. It The comic book, different than the book, is a collectible. Yeah. So there is some value to it if... Uh, it, it does it does increase in value. So what would you say, and, and we're going to wrap this up pretty shortly, but and I, and I want to thank you for coming on and for being you know so open about discussing this stuff. Sure. But what do you think, if there were a, a young would-be self-publisher out there, what do you think is the single best piece of advice that you can give them? And you can elaborate. I mean, maybe it isn't a single piece. Maybe it's a three-pronged plan. Yeah, I, I, it's probably not just one piece of advice. I think, you know, the main thing is to spend the time drawing great comics. 
um, explore Kickstarter for, you know, first of all, if you don't have a publisher, definitely get it on Comixology Submit. You could easily do that. You can get your books on Kindle as well, Comics Plus, uh, Kobo, all those e-readers put out e-pubs but you're going to get your most orders from comiXology it's kind of like ebay where everybody sells on ebay because it's the biggest market Mm -hmm. you're going to get most of your sales from comiXology it's a worldwide app everybody reads it you know put your book out there digitally start a webcomic you can give your comic book away for free and sell it there's plenty of people that do it it's about building readership Mm -hmm. building a following and um you know Work a day job, save some money. For a thousand, fifteen hundred bucks, you could get two thousand floppy comic books printed. You could do that in America. You could do it in China. There's plenty of places you'll find. Print them up, start selling them, start hawking them out of your car. If the work is good, someone will pick you up, or you'll get a freelance job, in Marvel or DC, or somebody will. They maybe don't. They won't like this project. They'll like your next project. That's but something you, that's important. Is that the value of a hard good as a business card for future employment that there are tons of people that started out in the artist alley at, at Comic-Con True. and then work themselves up into being self-publishers or just being name artists and certainly sure. the the brass at DC and Marvel walk over and say hey we'd love to have you do a cover they do and it doesn't pay well <laughs> I know that the um, that the freelance rate for Marvel at least a year and a half ago was $600 a cover and that's no royalty wow but wow. um, that, I think it was way more in the '90s. I think in the '90s they'd get like 12 or even more than that. Yeah, I think that the uh, the numbers are down, obviously, so there isn't as much money on the table. But um, you know the the circulation numbers are way down. Yeah, true. But that the there's such it's a buyer's market that yeah. there's so many people willing to almost work for free. And you know we talked about um, the attempt to unionize with Steve Bissett on the on the second episode. And I always say that it's in everybody's best interest to be completely transparent about the numbers because, you know, there are power in numbers. And if if you unify, and I won't say necessarily unionize, but um, if if you're all well-informed, then you don't feel like you're getting ripped off. But more importantly, you don't hurt a system that's already existing. And And I think you can still make money other ways, too. Like, say you don't make as much at your page rate, but you have the original art that you could sell. You can resell, and it's more valuable because it's been on the cover of an established book. Sure, mm-hmm. absolutely. And a lot of these comic artists, they go to conventions, they do, they sit there all day and do commissions. Some yep. guys get like 200 250 for an 8.5 by 11 commission drawing of Wolverine and, you know, Wolverine fighting Batman or some crazy yeah. thing that you wouldn't see in the comics. A one-hour sketch. Yeah. Yeah. And they make like 200 bucks. So, I mean, there are other doors that open up when you become established, for sure. I think that's a really great place to stop. I want to thank my guest, Frank Forte, for being on the show. Great. Um, you want to you want to put out some, um, some websites for our, our, our listeners? Uh, sure. Uh, frankforte.com is my uh, website. Uh, at Instagram, it's frankforteart. Same with Twitter. And blogger, I'm frankforte.blogspot. And I frequently update um, all those pages with art, sketches, stuff in my studio. Um, so, yeah, that's where I am. Excellent. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to Thank you. this episode of Pod Sequentialism. I'm Matt Kennedy, and we'll, we'll speak to you next time. Melt you. The school at Meltdown, where they teach you the skills to make comic books. 
Some of the current classes include creating comics, drawing comics for kids, and the art of inking. Coming soon, there will be classes for short film writing, drawing basics, and kids make zines. Go to meltcomics.com and enroll now.